Welcome to the Smart Talk series, the Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our discussion today came from our archives and was recorded in August of 2020. Our talk is hosted by the Henry George Chair at St. John's University, Alexandra Kevorkian, who is joined by our guest, Dr. Charles Clark, and our Director of Education, Ibrahim Adrame. Dr. Clark earned his bachelor's degree from Fordham University in Economics and his master's and PhD from the New School in the History of Economic Thought and Industrial Organization. He is currently a senior fellow at the Vincentian Center and previously served as president of the Association for Evolutionary Economics and the Association for Institutionalist Thought. Dr. Clark has authored over 150 different journal publications and two books, Rich and Poor and Rediscovering Abundance, both examine the role of inequality and how it impacts policy. Dr. Clark is currently a professor at St. John's University, my alma mater, and the University of College Cork, and the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas in Rome. When he is not teaching, Dr. Clark does consulting work on fiscal policy, tax, and welfare reform, and serves an, as an advisor to the Holy See Permanent Mission to the United Nations. Quite an extensive resume, to say the least. We were lucky enough to join Dr. Clark in discussing universal basic income. Most conversations on UBI focus on costs or how they will impact individuals' incentives. However, our talk was a little different. We instead chose to talk about UBI through an ethics and human flourishing lens. When listening to this talk, I encourage you to think about quality of life and how UBI would impact standards of living. We hope you enjoyed this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Well, I, I went to the New School for Social Research and I did my dissertation under Robert Halbreiner and thought that I would spend my career writing about Adam Smith and other dead white people. Uh, and then I just got asked, I was teaching in Ireland for a year and I was asked to do a study on how a basic income would influence the labor market in Ireland by a group that was pushing basic income I had never even heard of a basic income at the time, and I sent them a letter when I read a newspaper article about them saying, this sounds interesting, please send me your report. And then eventually they talked me into doing a labor market study, and then numerous others, which led to many of the books on basic income. I, did a, I helped a group do the analysis for Canada, which is the basic uh, economic security book. Uh, a couple of groups in the United States, I helped them out as well uh, with the costing. And uh, mostly uh, I've been involved in the practical aspects of it uh, in terms of how do you pay for it, how would you transition, questions like that. Uh, I've mostly stayed out of the philosophical debates on basic income, although occasionally I have been asked to speak on things like what would Catholic social thought have to say. I've written a lot on Catholic social thought uh, as well as what it has to say about economics. Hmm. Okay, well, maybe we could, thank you for this. Maybe we could begin with uh, a very simple question just to get definitions all in order. What is basic income? Well, the proposal for a basic income is to guarantee people an income 
generally today it would be a monthly income or a weekly income, but something that would be a regular thing uh, that would ideally be set at a level that would set them at uh, above the poverty level for that country. There have been many different types of proposals, uh, many much below what would be at the poverty level. Uh, but the idea is that it would give them security, uh, that it would redistribute income to the groups that are being kept out for whatever reasons from uh, the market economy or who cannot compete in the market economy. Uh, and it also allows for other benefits in terms of helping people transition in the economy that is rapidly transitioning. So it sounds like a very strong idea in terms of supporting the idea of social fairness, right? Well, the way I look at it, which is different from for many, there are you know there, there are thousands of reasons people put forward to uh, a basic income. It's sort of like the UN Declaration of Human Rights. They came to an agreement on the human rights, but no one agrees on why there are human rights. <laughs> uh, but it's a good part of our wealth comes from the fact that we just happen to live in the society that we live in. Uh, it has completely detached from any contribution uh, we have uh, connected to it. Now, a good part of our income is connected to how hard we work, how much education, uh, and other factors. But a good part is just that we were born in late 20th century America, and we, we have a share of that. And everyone in the country has uh, just, we inherit that, but it's not divided up at all equally. And part of this is just the intellectual capital and the, and the benefits of the technology and the ideas that have been passed on from one generation to the next. And part of it is just the value of where we live, the mineral resources underneath us. And, you know, so the idea is that you take part of the economy and divide that up equally. And then you let the market take care and other social policy take care of all the other things. Uh, because if we love, if we take that percent, and I don't know what that percent is, but let's say it's 25%. If we take that 25% and let the, the market take care of that, well, then it's not go, going to any actual productivity factor. It's going to who can grab that portion. And so it will go to the powerful. But then what about sort of the premise of market economy, economy of competitive forces and benefits accruing to most sort of most effective and efficient use of resources? Yeah, so you still have the market taking care of, let's say, 75% of incomes out they're divided or the market and social policy because there are other factors this, People who are disabled might need more income support than what you would give them in a basic income because they have higher costs, health costs, things like that. But uh, you still have sufficient market signals uh, and social policy signals to try to encourage different types of behavior and all the reasons why we have economic policy. Uh, so I don't think it would mean that we'd have a much lower level of output uh, than we currently have. I see. Well, one question is that people often object, right? They'll bring up as an argument against the basic income idea is that it would put significant pressure on the government. 
there so what, this is one of the obvious criticisms, but maybe there are others, and how would you respond to, the, to those? Well, it was mentioned before, one of the interesting things about a basic income is that you get people like John Kenneth Galbraith and, and James Tobin, two economists who were giants when I was in graduate school, who were in favor of it. And then you have Milton Friedman uh, and conservatives who thought it would be better to just give the poor money rather than set up the whole welfare state and regulate the poor. Now, the level of basic income that Galbraith would propose as opposed to Milton Friedman would be different, but both thought uh, eventually you would have to have something like that. Uh, but the, the argument that society can't afford it uh, is used for everything. Uh, and of course, society can afford it, just the redistribution of uh, incomes. Uh, you have, if you look at the level of taxation, the high marginal tax rates that you would need to discourage people from going out and working or discourage people from going out and investing, taking risks, innovating, and all the things that we want to encourage, they're very high. And I've never seen a basic income proposal that comes up with tax rates that would prevent that sort of those incentive effects. Mm -hmm. Well, but related to sort of the criticism, I'm wondering, Ibrahim, if you could uh, chime in. And I know you had a concern about whether um, a universal basic income, by the way, we need to clarify probably uh, the differences, but let's just go with the basic income program, whether that would have a wealth tax. Is that right, Ibrahima? Maybe you could add more to the question. Yes, that's exactly what I was going to uh, ask Dr. Clark. By the way, welcome to Smart Talk, Dr. Clark. Oh, thank you. Uh, uh, question has been raised, and uh, there is this idea of uh, resorting to a wealth tax in order to fund the basic income. Now, the question that comes to mind is how is that going to affect uh, productivity or uh, innovation. Because the more taxes you apply on something, the, the less you have of it. So how would you deal with that kind of criticism? And the other question that is somehow related to that is, companies are very good at avoiding taxes. So in case you impose a tax on, let's say, artificial intelligence and robots, there is a chance that some of them might try to evade the tax or even move out of the country. How would you deal with that? Well, the, the issue of how you fund it, uh, of course, is is a big part of basic income, and, and a lot of the variety that you see is in different, different ways of funding it. We do have guaranteed incomes. Some are universal, some are less universal, but we have Social Security, which is a basic income of some sort. Requirement is a certain age and that you've paid in to the system uh, to earn enough quarters. Uh, but the majority of adults uh, in the United States who reach the age of 67 uh, meet those requirements. So it's, it's almost universal. Uh, state of Alaska has a basic income. Uh, and it's a basic income that's funded out of the oil revenues that the state of Alaska, once oil was discovered, they take half the money and it goes into this fund that pays for called the permanent fund. Uh, and it is the most popular policy in the United States. I mean, uh, it's not set at a level to 
bring everyone above the poverty level. It's based on the price of oil, so it's not going to be that high now for, for this year. Uh, but if all you have to do, unless they've changed in the past uh, few years, you had to live in the state for 11 months, and then you qualified for it. And it was generally between 1200 and $2,000 per person. So a family of five would get a nice amount of money. And the people I know that lived in Alaska uh, who were college professors took that money and set it aside, and that was sort of their college fund for their children, things like that. But for most working people, uh, it was very important for them. Uh, so in terms of a wealth tax, now, this is completely separate from basic income. I haven't seen many basic income proposals that suggest a wealth tax. Uh, it's not, uh, well, if you're proposing something, it's better to rely on systems that you already have instead of, well, we're going to set up a completely new way of assessing wealth and taxing it. Uh, and that creates all sorts of complications and you don't know how easy it's going to be. When Elizabeth Warren came out with her wealth tax, there were a few people on the left who criticized it and said that it would not be as easy to set up. Uh, I mean, I pay a wealth tax because I own a house on Long Island. It's, you know, property tax. So, uh, but it's not adjusted based on my ownership of, you know, old books and economics, which I'm sure are incredibly valuable. Uh, but, uh, you know, I wouldn't propose it on a wealth tax, but I would be in favor of a wealth tax. Uh, your basic proposition that if you tax it, you'll have less of it. I think one of the fundamental problems of the world economy is there's just too much wealth and there isn't enough economic activity to support that wealth. Uh, and during the Great Depression, we got rid of a lot of the excess fake wealth based on speculation. But during the Great Recession, we didn't. We should have let a, a lot of that artificial, artificially blown up wealth disappear, uh, like Goldman Sachs and company lose a lot, and then we'd have a better balance between the amount of wealth and the amount of output that has to pay that wealth. But that's completely separate from a basic income. But generally, a basic income, I think, should be funded at the broadest possible level, so it's a secure set of things that goes to serve the purpose. Since we're conducting this uh, with in the Henry George School of Social Science, the natural question is to connect the question about funding a basic income type program um, with the proposal that Henry George is kind of most known for, the land value tax. Right? If, I don't know, Ibrahim, if you want to also add to this question. Yes, Henry George was in uh, favor of basic income. He didn't call it so, he called it uh, the citizen dividend. And he saw it as one of those ways to uh, use the land value tax to, to pay for. So, but uh, the Georgist uh, approach to the question is a little bit different from what you hear from uh, mainstream economics, because they believe you cannot implement uh, basic income without fundamentally reforming the tax system that we have currently. Now, the reason for that is uh, 
the land value tax not only uh, is important in terms of collective revenues, but it's also essential in, in terms of uh, dealing with inequality. So if you were, for example, to fund the basic income using taxes and assuming those taxes are not collected from rent, what's gonna happen is more people will receive basic income and most likely more people would be using some of that money to spend on rent, which would translate into rising demand for housing. And of course, the consequence would be those who own the land and who, who uh, own uh, uh, properties will uh, tend to benefit disproportionately and uh, prices of course is gonna be going up. And uh, that's why the Georges think that a land value tax is probably a better way to, uh, to fund the basic income. Because if you do it uh, using the land value tax, you will also be able to control somehow uh, housing price inflation. Housing will become probably more affordable and uh, the income that you are paying to people would probably uh, go a long way. Now, if you don't do it that way, you get inflation and you end up facing a situation whereby uh, the basic income will have to be adjusted as housing prices increase. So that the Georges believes that is going to create a, a, a political problem for government because more people will rise up against uh, the idea of basic income. So this is interesting, but Dr. Clark just mentioned how to make a basic income program be more effective, you should rely on the existing tax infrastructure. Did I understand this correctly? Not invent something new. Yes, oh. that's, a, that's a very good point that you are making. And I agree totally what he says. It's easier to build from what we know instead of just bringing two big radical reforms at the same time. You know, because also there, Doug Clark pointed out the problem with too much wealth. So yes, but but again, what, what I want to what I what I want to add was Alaska has something that Dr. Clark just mentioned, and what you have in Alaska is exactly what Henry George would call a land value tax somehow, because land in George's definition is not just the piece of real estate where you build your house; it also covers everything that nature provides. I everything see. that is in the planet except human beings and the stuff that they make. So mm -hmm. oil is one of them. Alaska provides a very good template. Now let's look at all the sources where we could uh, probably collect the rent. So several ideas. Charlie, how would you respond to all these? Well, I mean, most of the work, my work has been to come up with how would it affect uh, the distribution of income, uh, aggregate demand, various economic effects, and then to propose different funding sources. I mean, these are really political decisions. Uh, and so, I mean, I, I think the idea of a, of a guaranteed income should be kept by itself, uh, debated, decided, and then go on to, well, if it's worth doing, then how are we gonna pay for it and get into all those issues? Because what often happens with the basic income, particularly now that it's become very popular, is that everything else has tied itself to a basic income. And so we want a basic income, and then what I'm really interested in is in doing X, Y, and Z. Uh, and then the discussion is just really all over the place because the X, Y, and Zs are not gonna be compatible with other people who are proposing a basic income 
but they want it funded through, you know, pollution tax or carbon tax or, or uh, I, I knew a guy who wanted to do it through uh, uh, an email tax thing, which I was in favor of because that meant I would get less email. If you taxed it, I'd get less crap sent to me uh, on the internet. But, you know, so I think the, the basic idea of how do we provide economic security uh, for everybody uh, and the benefits of that in, in an economy that is transitioning, particularly transitioning in a way where uh, work is becoming more of a challenge since we are becoming more and more replaceable by machines, that the, that, that is, I think, the important issue around uh, basic income. How you fund everything that government does is another very important issue and, and, and one that requires significant reform and new thinking. Uh, since so much of the wealth gets is completely avoids any taxation. I mean, a lot of my work has been on the Irish economy. And in many ways, Ireland is a huge tax haven where Apple pays 2% profit tax instead of paying the tax that they would normally pay as a profitable corporation in all the countries that they, that they operate in. But they've managed to come up with a way to book all their profits through an office in Dublin and avoid paying taxes around the world. And they're getting caught and, and fined and other things for that. But... Uh, the general problem of those who have income and control the world's wealth have so many avenues for avoiding taxes that the issue of rethinking taxation and how we collect the money that uh, society needs, uh, and not just the money that it needs to pay for a basic income, because you know a government with a sovereign currency could pay for anything that's being sold. The issue is you have to absorb spending out. If you're adding $2 trillion in spending to the economy uh, and do nothing else, then you'll start causing inflation. So you would have to, just like Social Security doesn't have to tax people to pay for Social Security, it has to tax it so that the people who are working aren't trying to buy the same goods as the senior citizens that we're giving money to will want to buy. Uh, so I think you can, you can, look at them both uh, as separate issues because they both have to be addressed. When I was working on the issue of basic income in Ireland, which I, I helped write part of the Irish government's green paper on basic income, uh, the big thing in poverty research and social welfare research was tax and benefit integration. And, and how do you uh, take both into account so that you don't have you know, benefits that cause disincentives or taxations that cause disincentives. I'll give you an example. I, I did a study for a group, in, a basic income proposal for a group in England. And one of the things that we found out is that the taxation system in England at the time, and this is the late 90s, early 2000s, was such that if your income was at 12,000 British pounds and then it went up to 14,000, that whole time period, your net income actually went down because you lost benefits at a faster rate than you gained in income. And you really had to get to like 14500 before your net income was higher. So you had 
all these different what they call poverty traps built in because the taxation system and the benefit system each were working on basically different tracks and the taxation system is often much more punitive uh, towards the poor than the benefits system, particularly in Europe. Uh, you know, so that was a big issue back then. Now it's not so such an issue because the financial crisis now with the, uh, the pandemic, but much more uh, of it, of, of the growth in basic income uh, as, as a, as a policy has been in the developing countries. Uh, if you spend any time at the United Nations, you hear all this attention for the past 10, 15 years on using cash transfer systems as an important way of lifting people out of poverty. And the basic income policies in Brazil and Mexico were very effective in dramatically reducing poverty in the areas that uh, they put it in. They, they weren't uh, the Mexican one wasn't based on individuals, it was based on families. And there were some conditions, children had to get checkups at doctors and they had to attend schools. So it wasn't anything burdensome. In fact, it was things you want to encourage. Uh, but the growth in basic income in the developing world uh, and the implementation is much more advanced now than it is in, in the developed world, in the rich countries. Yeah, I just want to add to this and then come back to what you mentioned about your work with Ireland. But on the developing countries, my area, sort of geographic research areas, transition economies, I've done work mostly there. That's the former socialist countries of Eastern Europe, Central Eastern Europe and former Soviet Union. And the emphasis on, call it, a, call it different names, basic income or some type of social guarantees is various remains still to be very strong and different countries of course they're different size in terms of their economies most of them are small but they rely on a combination of um, uh, resources they may undercut certain funding in um, maybe uh, defense or education actually and then direct some of that uh, extra funding towards the um, payment of pensions or families with uh, uh, more than two kids, for example. So in a way to also stimulate uh, demographic growth because in the 90s, uh, a lot of them lost up to 20, 30% of their population. But the larger countries rely in the similar case as Brazil on the surplus revenues from exports of natural resources. So um, there's, and obviously, in the years before the 90s, there was there were all sorts of guarantees built in, but that was more of a political uh, decision. So I would agree with you that this ultimately comes to being that it's an econo it's a it's solving economic problem, but it is an, a political question. Yeah. But one of the things you have to watch out for, and particularly with programs like the Alaska Permanent Fund, is that the idea that a basic income can be free, that we have this other source that, you know, we don't have to really, it's not everyone contributing and everyone benefiting. It's just this newfound oil, which of course makes exploiting the oil as much as possible a goal of public policy because everyone's getting a check out of that uh, when we should probably be spending our, our time investing in ways that are not 
generating energy without oil. Uh, and so you could easily have set up a system uh, that this is like a lot of local governments will do this, but we'll have casinos and the casinos will be free money for the city so we can do things with this new free money. And what have we done? We, not besides encouraging gambling and other things, casinos tend to ruin neighborhoods and, you know, just go to Atlantic City to see what happens uh, when, you, when you, your future is bet on casinos. Whereas what you're doing is you're telling the, the taxpayer, hey, we're going to this new benefit we're going to give everyone, but you're not going to have to pay for it. We're going to get this alternative. You know, we'll, we'll use exports or, or something like that. Uh, and following my hero, Adam Smith, I think everyone should contribute so that it's seen as this is, we're all sharing part of the economic pie based on we're all in this together and we want no one to fall below a certain minimal level and then we can fight over the other eight slices. It sounds like uh, what you're describing for uh, this program to be effective, it's a combination of um, sort of the, the direction, sort of who are the receivers uh, of, of benefit, monitor benefit, but also a combination of choosing the right sources for funding. And I really am encouraged by the statement that you made that it could be uh, it could be a free resource. It could be right now natural resource such as oil, but maybe with oil hitting negative prices, it may be something different uh, as well in the future. And what, what I'm leading towards to is what I read in your book, The Basic Income Guarantee. And the Basic Income Guarantee, Ensuring Progress and Prosperity in the 21st Century. And I believe it was uh, based on the example of Ireland. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more in detail about your work, uh, maybe from drawing from the book, but also your work with Ireland. You already mentioned this, but maybe expand it a little bit more, especially in the context of uh, SDGs, right? The Sustainable Development Goals at the UN. Yeah, so I started working with a group, uh, which was the Social Justice Commission uh, of the CORI, which was the umbrella group for all the religious orders in Ireland back then. Uh, in 95, and I taught in Ireland in 94, 95 at University College Cork. Uh, and now this is spun off into Social Justice Ireland. And so Social Justice Ireland, I think has been like, if not the most, one of the most effective sort of NGOs and influence in public policy uh, in, in the country. Uh, and so basic income has been one thing. We've worked on many things, including we created this uh, index of social progress for Ireland, or now it's the index of sustainable progress using the SDGs. Uh, but the Irish situation right now, they have no one in the last election, no one won enough of a support so that all these, you need at least three parties in order to get a new government. So they're all negotiating right now. Uh, and many of the parties have a commitment to substantially uh, funding investigating basic income because basic income is a big part of their platform. Uh, and so it's been since late 90s uh, something that has been de debated by all the public parties, all the big major parties in Ireland uh, and would have had a good shot at success if it wasn't for the euro because in the 90s we had all the politicians engaging it 
And then everything shut down as they went into the Euro. And they said, well, we, we, we really can't think of anything or consider anything until we see how does this Euro experiment work, et cetera. Uh, and then they got distracted by the property boom and then the recession and all that. But so now it's coming back. And a lot of the political parties uh, have been pushing it before the pandemic, but now it's being supported even more when you have mass unemployment and dislocation because of the pandemic. Uh, so it, it will certainly be uh, part of the political debate. Uh, in, in, uh, at least one of the parties in government will have, as part of the manifesto, a commitment to a basic income. So, so what I know is that it will also been kind of contributing and in fact, I think instrumental in connection with Ireland is the Sustainable Progress Index, uh, the work around that. Well, Could you talk a little bit more about what that is. Well, that is, uh, again, this was work that uh, I originally did in 95, 96 for them. And it was critiquing a, the, the government in Ireland had developed a economic growth over everything policy so that as long as GDP was going up, uh, that's all that mattered. And so the economy went through this called the Celtic Tiger, this massive increase, growth rates of six, seven, eight percent for many years. The government ran budget deficits for 15 years. Uh, and yet it took a very long time, you know, 12 years into the this boom economy before you start to see the benefits trickle down to uh, average workers. And of course, you had a couple of years of that and then everything blew up. Uh, and so uh, what we have been arguing is that GDP is an important tool for economists to do their analysis and, and, and make some policies, but uh, the government has to look at social well-being in a broad way so they can evaluate how their policies are actually affecting children and families and the disabled and all sorts of groups. So, I mean, we did it well before there were any uh, SDGs, but then when the SDGs came out, then you had not only a framework, but you had commitment by particularly all the European Union countries to track the uh, 230 some uh, sustainable development goal indicators. So now that you have this wealth of data that you could use, uh, and what we always did is we compared Ireland with 14 other countries in the European, uh, in the Eurozone, uh, so that you can benchmark how is Ireland doing in terms of the environment, how are they doing in terms of youth. So like one issue is, uh, Neat, which is uh, youth who are not in education, training, or employment, uh, during the recession in Ireland, it went up to 20%. But many countries in Europe, it stayed flat at 4 or 5%. You know, so they, the idea is that, that you can point to the government and say, look, look at how the Netherlands have, has been able to keep their youth engaged we should look at their policies as maybe ways that we could do the same thing because it's very important for youth to be engaged. You don't want them not in education and not in employment, not in training. That causes long-term problems. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's a very business school approach. 
which the SDGs are is basically uh, designed by business school professors, it seems like, that will just come up with a lot of benchmarks and measure the heck out of everything. And then, and, and that's useful. I mean, it's not everything because you still need a sense of values and, and vision and what connects people as people. But uh, it's, it's all designed to counter this whole GDP is all that matters. You know, in 2015, Ireland's GDP went up 25.6%. Now, that's impossible, but, you know, but it did. And, all about how you count. Yeah, but it, so it's, you know, it's, there's, there's a growing consensus now among many economists that GDP is just not a good indicator for how your country is doing. And the SDGs give us a huge array of uh, variables that we can look at that we can assess how countries are doing uh, so that you can measure and say, this policy isn't working. Uh, look, infant mortality is going up. We need to do something different. Well, I agree with you on this one. And I see there's so much new research that is coming out tackling GDP with sort of titles beyond GDP or alternatives to GDP. And of course, UN has had the um, HDI, uh, the Human Development Index, yeah. for quite a while and so on. But um, kind of drawing towards the conclusion, because I know we've already been talking for quite a while, I have, I think, a couple of just two more questions. One is very important, I believe, and probably will help the audience understand also sort of your intellectual uh, background into the topic of basic income SDGs as well. I'm curious if you could kind of share a little bit more details on the concept of Catholic social thought and how it influences uh, your work. Uh, what are sort of some of the key facts that people should really know about it to understand why it is important, how it connects with sort of today in general? Okay, well, the Catholic social thought tradition starts in the 1890s, maybe a little earlier, but it's basically, it was looking at the Industrial Revolution and how is it so upended uh, the lives of, of, of people of the working class for the most part, uh, and that, that they were just being excluded and that we needed to think about uh, how you could improve their lives in a different way. Uh, and not in terms of coming up with policies. I mean, John Paul II uh, would always say, it's, the church's it's not the church's job to come up with economic policies. That's not our expertise. Uh, but what they, what they centered on back then, and this has been the central theme since then, is that the sort of laissez-faire capitalism just reduced humans to just this rational economic man in a doggy dog world and just took them out of community, emptied them of any sort of humanity. And what Catholics also thought uh, emphasizes that all people are born with inherent dignity. They have a social nature. They're unique individuals, but they have a social nature. They have to live in community. Participation is fundamental to being a human. And so Starting from there, you start to ask different questions as to how should society solve its very economic and social problems. Uh, 
and it's it became the basis of much of what became the human rights literature, uh, the work by Jacques Maritain in terms of the UN Declaration. It inspired the Human Development uh, uh, Index for the United Nations that came after was inspired by uh, Pope Paul VI uh, in Cyclical. Uh, and so it's just taking this view that if humans have dignity and if they are inherently social, uh, how does that change how we try to understand problems right now for Pope Francis of the environment and climate change and how we see it as much an ethical issue as a scientific issue, uh, putting the dignity of the human person as an essential part, and of course, part of being human is being human on Earth. And our relationship with the planet is part of being human. Uh, and so it just frames it differently. Uh, it doesn't necessarily give an economic agenda. You could bring in economic concepts from different, you'd have a hard time bringing Austrian economics because they take this rational economic man to extremes. I think but, it's slightly becoming less popular these days. In, in the... Yeah, but <laughs> one could hope. But, <laughs> uh, but you know, but it, it's not an economic agenda. You know, so when I work at the United Nations uh, with the Holy See, uh, we're not there to say this is the way you should solve problems. We're there, there to say that when in discussing this problem, we have to look at how does it affect the poor because the preferential option for the poor is one of the fundamental concepts of Catholic social thought. So the first thing we look at, does this improve the lives of the poor? Because if it doesn't, then we, knew, we need to move on to something else. Uh, if they're excluded from the central focus of the starting point of a policy, then we're on the wrong track. And yeah. so it's, it's much more to, to engage uh, the world, uh, different countries, uh, in the discussions on economic and social and political policy, but to reinforce that humans have dignity, uh, promote human rights, education, healthcare, and all those, uh, as well as be the institution that's always speaking out for the poor. Yeah. So, and for full disclosure, I'd like to also acknowledge that I'm happy to and enjoy every time we get a chance to cooperate on working with the Holy See uh, mission um, on these topics as observers, as experts and contributing uh, kind of our um, expertise, specifically focusing on the, these questions, development, and especially as it affects the, the poor, uh, global poor. And, and uh, uh, it's a very serious uh, issue. So I see where your also motivation for basic income as a kind of very pragmatic solution comes in. Um, yeah, incidentally, in fact, uh, Pope Francis but, mentioned basic income uh, last week. That is, no, he, well, okay. he suggested that this is something that we might have to start looking at because of the disruptions from the pandemic. So that's going to be one of the questions I'm going to ask uh, in a moment, but just a quick comment. Uh, for me, um, the initial motivation came from a very unlikely source, a German philosopher, Georg Wilhelm Hegel. Basically, in 1821, he wrote uh, a short or long, rather, piece 
philosophy of right with two short paragraphs stating that the the new society that was evolving at the time would be uh, leading towards impoverishment of masses and that needs to be resolved for the sole preservation of that new new industrial society new capitalist society and he had two uh, sources either tax the rich or create a system of support um, and at that time of course he referred to uh, churches and uh, um, these type of Communal, communal organizations. Of course, today we have much more uh, in terms of fiscal flexibility, but also organizations. So this is a topic that's been on policymakers' mind for a very long time, right? Um, no, go ahead. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, right now we're asking the whole country to stay in their houses or at least, you know, 75%, the other 25% are essential workers going out. Uh, for some people, like college professors, uh, it's not that great a sacrifice because we still have our paychecks. Uh, whereas for many people, they've lost their, their livelihood. Uh, and this is just completely unfair that, that the benefits of the society should be, should be shared with them uh, particularly since we all have to sacrifice and we shouldn't have their sacrifice being so much greater than those of us who can work from home, uh, et cetera. So in this situation, a basic income seems sort of obvious, but we just, since 1980, have gone through this transformation to a globalized economy, which has excluded the old working class and industrial belt uh, from the benefits because they don't don't have the education, they're not in the urban centers on the coasts that have benefited from this new economy. Uh, no, you have to, there should be in the, in the system as well and benefit. Uh, and a basic income is a way that recognizes there is going to be winners and losers anytime you make a change. And you can dramatically reduce the, the, the effects of those who are going to lose by ensuring that, yes, but you're still going to be supported. And we're going to support you so that you can train and try to get into a different path because your industry no longer is going to be uh, around because it's either going overseas or it's just disappearing altogether. I mean, we have a lot of people who became very wealthy and or middle class, good lives, working in fracking in the past 10 years. Uh, and if the situation in stays like this for another couple of years, they'll all be unemployed. Or another six months, they'll all be unemployed uh, because there's just no demand for what they produce. Uh, it shouldn't be, the gains shouldn't be so concentrated and the losses so widely spread. Uh, it should be more equal. You did mention at the beginning uh, John Kellan Galbraith and Milton Friedman, which we know are just at both ends of the spectrum. So even though they don't see eye to eye on many issues, at least they agree on basic income. And uh, mm -hmm. lately we've also seen a lot of support. You mentioned the Pope, but there is also, I just recent news that I got today, a group of 100 uh, United Kingdom members of parliament who came up in support of basic income. So an old idea is finally getting close to, you know, being a policy. So. Uh, do you think uh, the crisis that we are going, we are under, we are uh, uh, going through right now, is going to accelerate the process? Well, it could because 
Uh, an obvious thing that should be done is some form of universal support for the huge percentage of people who are being dislocated because of the pandemic, which probably is going to last up to 18 months. You know, it's, it's not going to go back to normal until there's a vaccine or a, a, an effective treatment, and these things do not happen very quickly. And if you start that system, it's hard to go back away from it. Once people have a benefit, they're not going to want to give it up. I mean, you you have, uh, if you introduce universal health care in America, you'll get people complaining for a couple months, maybe a couple years. But like Obamacare now, as soon as you start to try to take any of it away, then people start marching. Uh, and so if once people get used to having a, a monthly check, they're going to see that, no, we, we, we want to keep this. And then then even Republicans will come out in favor of it. <laughs> so very interesting, all fascinating. Um, and we can continue talking about this much longer, especially your comment just a moment ago about how some of the jobs are disappearing. And I, yeah, in this, I hear the effects of automation on top of the other pressures that we're dealing with right now. But let's leave it for another time, for another meeting, probably. <laughs> I'd like to thank uh, Ibrahima for joining us and, and uh, on this panel, but most uh, biggest thanks to Dr. Clark, Charles Clark of St. John's University, uh, Tobin College of Business of St. John's University. And uh, we are very grateful for you sharing your expertise with us today and your views on concept of basic income and in general, philosophical. Thanks for having me. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.